You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We're so thankful to have you here today, and we have a special guest, Lauren Oshman. Lauren is actually one of my best friends. She's also a business partner of mine at Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors. Vestia is a registered investment advisor. They serve primarily a clientele that consists of leading doctors around the country, as well as other young professionals, business owners, executives, uh, and their families. So Lauren, I'm so thankful to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always excited when I get to brag on people, and uh, and it's obviously always more fun when somebody else is bragging about you. So, audience, I just need to let you know right up front, Lauren is uh, goes way beyond a protege. Uh, she accomplished in the first three years of her practice what took me eleven. So, I've just always been wildly impressed with Lauren. She is still in the wealth management space today, leading a great firm at Vestia. And in full disclosure, I am one of the owners at Vestia. So, it's important that our listeners know that right out front. But we're glad to have Lauren here. And Lauren, I have so much I want to ask you about today. So, let's dig in. I want to go back to just you growing up with a dad who was a doctor. And I want to hear about what that was like. Yeah. So my father is an interventional cardiologist. He went into practice. I want to say maybe I was in fourth grade. Elementary school was when he went into practice. So I remember, I still remember I'm one of four, the oldest of four. I remember we were all in the car. My mom stayed at home, took care of us. We were, I don't know where we were driving to, but I remember the grocery store had a banner hanging up that said double coupons. And My mom turned our car around, went back home to get her coupons so that we could do our grocery shopping that day. I don't know what inflation adjusted this is, but my dad made $24,000 a year. Um, And at the time, there were three of us and my mom who stayed home. So, And that was during residency? Yeah, during residency and fellowship. I've already learned something new. I didn't realize your dad didn't go into practice until you were pretty late in elementary school. Mm-hmm. I grew up, My we had three beds in one bedroom. So my two brothers and I all shared one bedroom in the house we lived in while my dad was finishing residency, um, then got an extra bedroom. So I got my own for a minute before he went into practice. And then we actually moved into you know what you'd think of as a doctor's home. But the I mean, key takeaway and what informs how I work with clients to this day is I know what it's like to have a family member who's all in on work. I mean, my dad, I didn't see him for sometimes days at a time. I remember he would leave little toys with like a little note for us (laughs) on the table when we would come out and eat our breakfast if it was a week. I mean, he was working 100 plus hour weeks moonlighting so that he could make a little bit of extra money to support the family. It was really, really rough. And I wish I could say it got better when he went into practice it got a little bit easier because he did get a little bit more time off. He was a little bit more in control of his schedule. But again, with taking call, there were weekends he couldn't take us to the movies because he might get called. So yeah, I'm intimately familiar with what it looks like to grow up in a physician household. So I took multiple persuasive or like public speaking classes. You know, you always have to give the persuasive speech or write the persuasive essay. 
Fun fact, every single time I had to write about an issue, it had something to do with probably tort reform. <laughs> so <laughs> I was I was very clued in to the issues facing doctors and always wanted to be able to do something about it. So I think it's kind of cool that my career came full circle. And here I am. I get to help doctors, hundreds of doctor families all day, every day. That's what I do. That's fantastic. So you start in West Virginia. And then when your dad actually went into practice, where was that? He started his career in West Virginia as well. So we moved from for the few listeners who maybe know about the state of West Virginia. It's a small one. But those of us who are there are very proud to be from there. Um, Moved from Morgantown to Parkersburg. It's a couple of hours away on the other side of the state. So he started a private practice job there. Actually, we ended up moving to Missouri for him to join a private practice there when I started high school. The biggest impetus for that move was actually the malpractice insurance coverage situation in the state of West Virginia. So it became very difficult and expensive to get malpractice coverage in high-risk specialties in West Virginia, which obviously interventional cardiology is one of. Um, And so I think that plus some issues in the partnership, you know, partnership dynamics are a huge part of being in private practice, just kind of had him expanding his horizons, looking for a change. Neither one of my parents had ever lived outside of the state. (laughs) So they both born, raised there, went to West Virginia University. So it was a big move, not just for us as kids, but also for my parents who were leaving their home for the first time. Absolutely. And for our listeners, I just want to share real quickly. So when Lauren's talking about tort reform, she's talking about medical malpractice premiums. What we're really talking about is physicians, a a kind of a little known aspect to the medical world, if you're not in it day in and day out, is that their insurance premiums can be just beyond what you could ever fathom. I'll give you an example Um, We know of some OBGYN physicians in the state of Florida that pay over $120,000 a year for their premiums for just medical malpractice insurance. So it's, you know, it's just this incredibly costly insurance, probably among the most expensive insurance you could find. I think maybe insuring roller coasters costs more, but, you know, outside of that, medical malpractice coverage is very, very expensive. And it differs state to state depending on the state laws. So if you have a state like Indiana, for example, that's very, very friendly to doctors and has this professional review process in place, premiums in Indiana are significantly lower than if you go to a state where they don't have that same structure and it's really just open up free for all to the normal courts, it can be a gigantically different insurance cost. So Sounds like, Lauren, your dad's cost was just getting to a point where it was untenable, and that's when he moved over to Missouri, where it wasn't the same issue. So, listeners, this it truly is one of the biggest challenges facing medicine, is that you have kind of this, like, you're asking these scientists to come in and do their absolute best to keep us alive. You know, that's really, at the end of the day, that's what a lot of doctors are out there doing, or keep us healthier Uh, or fix the parts of us that have become broken. And yet in our current tort system, uh, you know, tort, I just mean our our current lawsuit system, we make it really, really hard for that to be 
something that a doctor can do efficiently. So there's all this medical waste that occurs because everybody has to go beyond just crossing their T's and dotting their I's. They really have to do inefficient medicine that they would never do if they didn't have to worry around every corner about a lawsuit. And they always say in medicine for doctors, it's just one of the things you kind of learn as you're going it's not if you get sued, it's when you get sued. And unfortunately for Lauren and I both, we've seen so many doctors actually go through it and it really takes them off their game mentally uh, and emotionally for six to 12 months. I mean, it's a really painful process to watch a doctor that's really given their life to making people better find themselves as a target of a lawsuit. And a lot of times an unwarranted one, uh, that's a, it's just a really scary place to be when you're trying to take care of your family and a business and, and all those things. So Lauren, anything you want to add to that? Yeah. I mean, I really do think that's one of the reasons for the doctors who are in the audience or for those of you who know a doctor working with a physician specific advisor or an advisor that has physician expertise is so critical because me growing up with that experience and the rest of our team members have learned from the experience that I've been able to share. Right. And from the experience that they have gone through with their own clients. I'm always thinking through a lens of asset protection, right? I'm not an attorney. Um, we do have to get attorneys involved at certain points, but there are also very pretty simple things that you can do in how you design where you save your money and how you title your accounts. I am always thinking about those things because I know how important it is because I've seen it firsthand. Absolutely. Uh, Lauren, my, my asset protection story that I unfortunately have to share about frequently is one of my best friends in the world actually built a very successful business. So he's one of those founders that just did a great job, built a successful business, sold that company. And unfortunately, the buyer of that business ran the company into the ground. And the creditors of the business in a landmark decision, instead of going after the new owner, they went after the old owner, the guy that sold the company. And ultimately, in the initial verdict, he lost. It became a groundbreaking legislation that you could sell your business. And ultimately, what they determined was he sold it for too much. And that's what then caused the new owner to not be able to keep it successful moving forward. Now, as a outside bystander, I think that's garbage. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think the new owner just didn't do a good job. And uh, ultimately, there wasn't an opportunity to appeal. And so from all of that, I just became so passionate about asset protection. Uh, with Lauren's help, I actually wrote an asset protection chapter of a neurosurgery textbook. This is probably eight years ago. That just goes to show you the level of passion that we both have in this case, because we've had people we love and care about go through messy litigation, and it's just not fun to see somebody have to do that. And unfortunately, you don't know until you go through it or until you see somebody go through it. So we can use that expertise to try to help the next one, you know? So Lauren, I'm going to rewind for just a moment. I got a little ahead of myself there, but I want to go back to you moved to Missouri. Uh, sounds like just in time for high school. And then after that, where was college for you? I went to Vanderbilt in Nashville, which is where I still live. And you have an office right across the street. That's true. I'm looking out my window at Vanderbilt's football stadium right now. Well, we're definitely going to get to Vanderbilt sports because I know you're a huge fan. But what was it that took you to Vanderbilt? 
Great question. I think I actually I always thought I was going to go to West Virginia. That's where my parents went. Uh, my great grandmother, her father paid for her to go to college in the days when not many women went to college. And she went to West Virginia, at least for some of her graduate work. So that was where I always thought I was going to go. And then as it got closer, I think it was in large part counsel from my dad. You know, he just said, hey, I think you should I think you should expand, kind of push yourself, you know, look at some of these really great schools. And so he actually was attending a medical conference in Nashville. (laughs) I tagged along, went on the campus tour. And I mean, it just felt just felt like where I wanted to go right away. So I applied. Uh, The acceptance rate is very small, (laughs) smaller now than it was 15 years ago or however long ago that was. And I got that big envelope in the mail, got in. And I mean, one of the best decisions I ever made to go to Vanderbilt. So you're at Vanderbilt. And somehow you become just this huge Commodores fan. And yeah, I, one I, of the 12. And I'm still trying to get my arms around it because there's, it's like a unicorn. There's just not a lot of you out there. I mean, you know, you talk about Buckeye Nation and there's like a whole nation. In, in your case, it's like a unicorn. So how did you become such a huge Commodores fan? I mean, I've heard about you going to baseball games, football games. Basketball. Basketball. I mean, yep, my how kids did are in, uh, in Mr. C's kids club? They're also proud Vanderbilt fans. So yeah. how, how did this all happen? Yeah, great question. So I grew up a sports fan and being a sports fan, you go to college. One of the reasons that I wanted to go to West Virginia was to be in the Mountaineer Maniacs. You know, that's their student fan club or whatever you call it. And so I wasn't going to say goodbye to that just because I went to Vanderbilt. So the amazing thing about going to Vanderbilt is that it is not hard. You can get to the stadium an hour before the game and you can get in the first two rows because most of the students are about the tailgating experience. They're coming in probably 20 or 30 minutes after kickoff if they even come to the game. (laughs) The game day experience is a thing at Vanderbilt, but a lot of times that skips actually going to the game. So I just started going to the games about an hour before, right? I'd be in one of the first two rows. It's incredible. It doesn't matter if you're watching your team get beat up by 50 points, um, which unfortunately I've seen too many times. Get to see some really great teams play. You know, Florida comes through, Georgia comes through, Alabama comes through (laughs) because we do play in the SEC. So you get to see really great teams play from the front row, which is just, uh, I mean, that's part of the college experience that I wanted and I wasn't going to sell that short because I went to a school that wasn't totally about athletics. So I appreciate this, actually. This is probably the first time I understand it. I think what I just heard you say is you became a massive Commodores fan because you get front row tickets to all the SEC sporting events. And it's really hard not to. I mean, I'm a big fan of the underdog. So Vanderbilt, the perennial underdog. I mean, every now and then we knock off Georgia. Right. And it is fun to be there when that happens. You guys had a really good season, I think, like four years ago or something <laughs> like that. We had maybe we had a few good seasons in a row when James Franklin, who is now at Penn State, when James Franklin coached here. Yeah. Excellent. And those days will come back. They really will. Vanderbilt actually does have an incredible baseball program. So we're big supporters of the baseball program and the baseball team are, I mean, national champions a few years ago. Runners up this past year. So, Lauren, uh, you know, as long as we've known each other, you've always just been a huge sports fan. One of the things I appreciate so much about you. And actually, at one point, I remember someone at our company had done a little Google stalking. And I think you actually won a sports award. Is that 
accurate? I don't know if I would call it a sports award. Uh, I was not doing the sports. Yeah, in high school, I was actually the manager of the wrestling team. So I kept all the statistics books and went to all the seed meetings for the tournaments where the coaches would fight over, you know, who should get seeded over who. Managed really the behind the scenes of the whole high school wrestling operation by the time I left. And I actually did get an award in USA Wrestling Magazine. Uh, I was the runner up for statistician of the year. Which is a great precursor and segue to your chosen career. But before we get there, along the way at Vanderbilt, you end up meeting a pretty special gentleman. Tell me about this. Yeah, my husband, Nick, we actually met. We met freshman year. I remember the night we met. He does not. Only because I knew of him before I met him. And I guess uh, he was more popular than I was. So he did not know of me before we met. And we were friends through college. By the time we got to later part of junior year, early part of senior year, we were best friends. And then he asked me out on a date the night we graduated. (laughs) And the rest is history. Obviously, you and Nick are still married today. And any children? Yes. So we are married, I think, eight years is how long we've been married. Uh, Supposed to be the husband that forgets that, but I uh, I get busy on it. I was wondering if I was allowed to call that out. Yeah. Yeah. And we have three daughters. So we have a four year old, a two and a half year old and a four month old at home. So we are right in the thick of early childhood at our house. You are in the stage I call physical exhaustion. I've always heard parenting goes from physical exhaustion when they're little to constant transportation, then to emotional terror, driver's license, dating, those things to the kind of uh, never-ending ATM, college, and then hopefully this lifelong friendship if everything goes well. So uh, you're definitely in that physical exhaustion phase. And, uh, you know, all of that is a segue for me into this question I like to ask all of our guests is just what was kind of that big break moment as it relates to your career that uh, got you to the point where you are now really leading a very successful registered investment advisory firm, uh, managing over $500 million for, for wonderful families all over the country. How did, you know, what was your big break that got you into that? Man, that's a really good question because I've never been able to pinpoint one moment. It's very much a series of moments for me, right? You look back and you say, well, if that hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have happened. And if this hadn't happened, then this next thing wouldn't have happened. Honestly, when I think back, every time I took one of those personality profiles or you know any of those things that was supposed to inform your career decisions, something that would come out loud and clear is that I have this probably unhealthy fear of failure. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of your audience can relate to that, being ambitious and founders and all of that. So Failure was not in my vocabulary, right? Going through elementary school, high school, I set my sights on something and I achieved it. And I think a little bit of that was challenged when I started at Vanderbilt because I went from being a very big fish in a small pond coming from Southeast Missouri to being what I call solidly average. There are brilliant people at Vanderbilt. And so that was a good reset for me going, me going from needing to know everything to saying, holy cow, there's a lot I can learn from people who are smarter than me. And so I started looking around for the people who were hands down smarter than I was, either overall or just in their area, right? And I just started trying to learn from those people and connect with those people. 
and really curiosity, I think, started to drive me. That was a shift. So uh, I had decided I had done a financial planning internship in college. I had decided that financial planning was what I wanted to do because it took I have a head for numbers. <laughs> I've always loved strategy, details, that sort of thing. But yeah, I'm a r- runner up statistician of the year. There you go. Yeah. I'm a people person. And so I couldn't, where most of my friends were going into, they were going into private equity or they were going into investment banking or whatever. That just wasn't, a cubicle was not for me, crunching numbers, you know, 24 hours a day. And so financial planning was where I kind of saw this marriage of everything that I enjoyed and was good at. Where I hit the most significant, the first significant roadblock that I probably hit is as a 21-year-old female it was very challenging to get an opportunity in financial planning because financial planning is largely an industry of um, people who are much older than I was at the time or than that I still am (laughs) and of males. And so every company I was interviewing with, it became this point when I would get, you know, to a certain point in the interview process that, you know, I would have been probably their youngest advisor, maybe their second female advisor if I was lucky, or they had seen, because there's not a super high success rate in our industry for whatever reason, they had seen women that it hadn't worked for before, right? And I think some of that got projected onto me. And so really, I think as simple as it seems, my big break, because I'm wired to be successful or to find that path to success, my big break was really getting a shot, (laughs) was getting hired and getting the opportunity to see if I had what it took instead of having someone prejudge me for, you know, not looking the part. And things worked out for me. And I have to interject. You say your big break was getting a shot. I really look at it, knowing what I know about your story, Lauren, I think your big break was a firm calls you back and says, hey, Lauren, we want you to come be a client service administrator. You know, we want you to start at the very beginning. And what was your response? Uh, thanks so much for the offer, but I think my skill set would be best suited to being an advisor. <laughs> so, no joke, she gets an offer. She's got an offer for a job and she's saying, no, I can do a lot more than that. I'm ready for a much different role than what you're offering. And, you know, to the credit of that firm, they did give you that shot. So, but I don't think them giving you that shot was the big break. I think the biggest difference in what you've achieved, Lauren, and what most people would achieve is most people, I think, would have just taken the job and said, okay, I'll, I'll start at the ground level. I'll work my way up. And instead, you're like, no, I'm charting my own path here. I know they've got me in a box that's not the right box. And I'm just not going to let them do that. And so you created your own pathway. And then I said at the very beginning, then in the next three years after starting, you did in three years what took me 11 when I was getting started in a very similar path that you went down. So just an incredible journey. I had someone ask me not terribly long ago. It was the first time I'd really been asked this question, but he said, you know, as a 21 year old starting in the financial planning business, how did you, how did you have doctors trusting you with their millions so quickly? And I'd never really thought about the answer to that question before, at least not that granularly. And I think it really goes back to what I talked about that shift in being curious 
and being excited to be around people that knew more than I did. One, I was always learning, right? So Tommy, you were a mentor of mine from early on. You knew so much more than I did. Um, You had already lived some of that or charted some of that path. And so it was me trying to learn from you. But I also take that approach. And this is how our entire firm's client experience process is designed, by the way, is taking this approach of, I need to learn about you and I need to learn what keeps you up at night because that's how I'm going to build the best plan for you. And it turns out, I didn't know this at the time, but that was very counter to what most doctors had experienced with our industry, right? Most people come in and they say, oh, I have a million dollars to invest. And immediately you're getting investment solutions that may or may not make any sort of sense to get you to where you want to go versus me. I didn't have all the knowledge in the world, at least not yet. (laughs) And so I started with what's keeping you up at night What do you need from your advisor? And then I started there. And I quickly realized if I didn't know the answers, all I had to do was know someone who did. And so that networking and that curiosity really came back, you know, kind of came full circle. And that's really what has driven me to this day to build uh, what I think is a really all around great client experience for physicians who work with us. You've always been one of the most curious people I know. And now that you say it this way, I absolutely attribute that as one of your greatest gifts and skills that you utilize. And and hopefully our listeners are hearing, you know, the the most successful people that I have on this show, that's a consistent theme. They are all just very, very curious, whether it was uh, Naveed and his brother trying to figure out, gosh, how are we going to go create the future of what education looks like? Or Mark trying to figure out how do we create a venture capital ecosystem inside of Los Angeles and and actually treat this city almost as its own economy. And even Naveen Goyle, who talked very much about what you heard from Lauren of trying to make sure he wasn't always the smartest person in the room, but then realizing that was not something to be frustrated by, but instead was an opportunity to learn and grow. Uh, just love that you're resonating with those that really consistent theme that we've heard along the way, Lauren. Yeah, I love that. Well, let's talk for a minute about Vestia and what it is that you do there. Yeah. So Vestia, as you mentioned, a um, financial planning firm. Honestly, what I've realized is most people don't actually know what that means. <laughs> So someone says, oh, I'm a financial planner or I'm an investment advisor or I work at a financial planning firm. And immediately people's minds go to they manage investments and maybe they'll tell me whether or not I'm on track for retirement. Right. For Vestia, it goes so beyond that. I spent most of my Friday trying to get a great client of mine who is buying their dream place, the best mortgage in the country (laughs) that I could find for them. Rates are staggeringly low right now. It would have been very easy to stop at the first rate that looked attractive. And instead I was like, nope, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep dialing and I'm going to find the best overall package that I can for this family. Right. So they're not doing that work because frankly, they don't have the time I'm doing that for them. How many emails have I gotten in the past two weeks about the proposed tax legislation? People that are worried that their backdoor Roth IRA is going away. People that are worried that they need to make last minute adjustments to their estate plan. They don't know any of the details, nor should they need to, right? They're just reading headlines that are making them anxious. You know what my clients are doing? They are texting me (laughs) those news articles that they're reading and I'm the one who's coming back to them and saying, hey, here's our plan. Yes, this might happen. Here's our plan to address it. I'm doing the stressing for them 
And I've already proactively reached out to those doctors that we work with who are going to be more affected than others by certain parts of this tax legislation if it goes through, right? During COVID last year, all our clients had to do was pick up the phone and make a call when their hospitals were adjusting comp, when our surgeons who are in private practice, their practice was just shut down. I mean, can you imagine how nerve-wracking that had to have been. Not only were they in the middle of an unprecedented global pandemic that they didn't have any more information about than the general public did at that point, right, back in March, but they were also watching their portfolios tank. They were getting emails from their hospital that were saying, hey, we're going to stop matching your retirement. We're probably going to have to cut your salaries. If you don't have someone... And make sure you have your affairs in order... You know, your hospital, your employer is sending you something saying, hey, this is so bad. You need to have your will done and you better make sure your life insurance premium is paid. That was like what hospitals were actually sending out to their employed doctors. And look, I know what it's like to be in over my head in areas that aren't mine right? Areas that I don't own or don't have the expertise in. I work with professionals that I trust. And all I do is send them an email or a text and I trust them to give me that guidance that I need and to kind of help me find that peace of mind that I'm looking for, right? And so what we deliver, notice nothing I've talked about so far has anything to do with an investment portfolio. (laughs) What we're providing is really that family CFO, that financial first assist, you know, every surgeon has their first assist in a surgery. That's what we're doing on the financial side. You pick up the phone, you text us. It's not just me. It's a whole team of people and we're on it. That's what we're here to do. What I love is when I get beyond the point of having to be even reactive, right, for a family. But a lot of the families that I've worked with for over a decade, I can anticipate what they need, what they're thinking, and I can actually go to them before they even get around to coming to me, which that to me is really the pinnacle of what I'm looking to provide for the doctors that we're working with. You know, I love it. One time you were telling me, Lauren, about how you assess quality control at Vestia. And I thought it was so good. You know, uh, most companies will send out their NPS score and they'll ask like, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to refer us to someone else? And, And there's a place for that. But I liked your response on how you do it at Vestia of measuring the times that clients actually have to go ask a question to their advisor. I mean, that's just, I've never heard of that anywhere else in the industry that you guys take being proactive so seriously that you're actually measuring how many times does a client have to come to you? That's just incredible. Yeah. One of our company values is never let them guess. And we really do try to, I mean, I engaged a service professional a couple of weeks ago to help me out with something. And I signed the engagement. You know, we had a great initial conversation. I signed the engagement. I paid the deposit. And I think everything's good, but it kind of just occurred to me. I haven't actually heard that from her. (laughs) So I'm like, wait, what if there was an issue? What if we're now two weeks behind in this process? You know, my mind starts racing. That's why we have this value. Never let them guess. We want to make sure that you're not stressing that something needs to be done that is not being done. If you need to be doing something, you're going to be hearing from us. Well, Lauren, this has been truly wonderful. Such a joy for me just to spend time with you. And now we get to go into my favorite segment of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question that everybody wants to know, which is really just something I want to know. And then the second is what people actually want to know. So uh, here's my question for you today. The question that everybody wants to know about. We didn't talk about it on the show yet, but I happen to know 
that growing up, your dad actually had a reptile room in your home. And I think it would be a big miss if we didn't help our listeners understand what a reptile room is, why one might have one, and what it was you did in your reptile room as a family. I did not see this coming up in the course of this conversation. So you have managed to surprise me. Yeah, my I think my dad had reptiles growing up, but my youngest brother, my brother Eric, he decided, I don't know, he was six or seven or something, and he wanted a pet snake. This is what he was asking Santa for. This is what he was asking for for his birthday. He wanted a pet snake. And I think my dad saw this as an opportunity to fulfill maybe an unrealized goal of his. And so he got my brother a snake for, I can't remember what holiday it was, but my brother got this snake. It was a uh, ball python named Smog after the dragon and the hobbit. And that was just something they did together. So my mom's requirement was that they had to be out of the house. They were actually in the house for a while. And every now and again, one would get loose. And so we'd come home from school and it would be like, we'd be on a scavenger hunt looking for the reptile. There, I mean, there were iguanas, there were turtles, there were snakes, all kinds of different reptiles. I still remember <laughs> being on one of said scavenger hunts and I never was actually looking, right? I was looking in all the places there was no way this lost reptile actually was so that I wasn't going to be the one that found it. And I remember pulling back the curtain in my brother's bedroom and there was this iguana just hanging on it. And uh, of course, I, I probably just screamed and called for my brother. They caught it and got it back in the cage. But quickly, it became a request that those reptiles move outside of the house. And so when we moved to Missouri, there is a, like it has a separate exit. You have to leave the actual house, go into a, another exit to go into this reptile room. Um, but it actually turned into a breeding operation. They own endangered uh, reptiles that you have to get licenses <laughs> to own or permits, I guess, to own. Um, they go to reptile shows all over the country. It's just a personal hobby and a little interesting fact about my background. I'm zero involved in it, but I know a lot about reptiles. So I think what I just heard is your dad still has this reptile room. He this does, was yeah. not like a temporary thing. This is like, no, no, no. This, this is still started a thing. when my brother was six and he's now 30 or something. I mean, so this has been a 25 year endeavor, not slowing down anytime soon. And I actually know your dad, Lauren, like he is not like a, you know, totally weird guy. Uh, I mean, he is a great guy. Actually, one of my heroes, I've actually adopted something that I saw your dad doing with you. And what what he was doing was he would send you and your siblings a text message every day, even though you're an adult, you're fully you know, off successful on your own right. And he still sends you a text message every day. I was like, I am going to do that. So I, because of Lauren's dad, I actually started doing that with my kids. Hopefully some of you listeners out there will steal that also from Lauren's dad. Now that you're hearing it on the show today and uh, send your kids a text every day. I just, the, the two main messages I try to tell them, I love them and I'm proud of them. Uh, those are just, you know, the things that I wanted to hear the most as I was finding myself becoming, you know, my own human. And so uh, I continue to send those to my kids. Thanks to your dad. So love that he has a reptile room. So I've never been there, but I'm going to add that. I'm going to two things. I'm going to add it to my bucket list to visit the reptile room. So it's now officially there. 
And then also, I'm going to there's a There's a tortoise there that's bigger than me. I did not see that coming. I picture like an aquarium. This is no, no, no. There's some so much animals. different than this. Okay, so folks, out on our Twitter feed, so uh, out at send you a picture of me with the turtle if you want it. Yeah, out at Tommy VC Martin on Twitter, we're gonna post this picture of Lauren versus the turtle and uh, let you see and and a picture of the reptile room. So we'll get that out there as this episode airs. You can go check that out at Tommy VC Martin. We'd love to see you over there. Uh, Lauren, now the real question that people want to know. So I know that we do have uh, quite a few doctors as listeners and and uh, just by nature of being in the healthcare space and the types of companies that we invest in, all those things. And so if a doctor is listening today or not just the doctor, really a successful a successful family uh, is listening today and they want to get a hold of you or the team over at Vestia, how do they do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So our website is VestiaAdvisors.com. It's Vestia with a V. And on the website, you can learn all about us. You can learn about our process. You can check out our team. Up in the upper right-hand corner, there's a contact us button. Click that. Tell us some just quick bullet points about you and we will be in touch within 24 hours. Well, Lauren, thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for being my friend. Thanks for putting up with all my idiosyncrasies. And uh, we look forward to seeing all of you back here at Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc. Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors is a registered investment advisory firm. Lauren Oshman is a registered representative of Osdale Financial Partners, Inc., a registered broker-dealer. I am a registered representative of the Securities Group, also known as Mammoth Research, a registered broker-dealer. Vestia, Osdale, and Mammoth are all independently owned and operated. And for further information about Lauren, me, or any of the firms mentioned, please be sure to check out BrokerCheck at brokercheck.finra.org, where you can find more information. Thanks so much for joining us.